Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode number six, Secure the Blessings of Liberty, How the Constitution Did It. And with me today is Luke Thompson, political consultant, history buff. If there's anything in electoral history he doesn't know, it isn't worth knowing. Luke. Well, so we, now we come to a, a small bite-sized subject, the Constitution, easily digested. Not much to say well, here. Well, that's why Supreme Court justices have no trouble with it. I yeah. Mean, it's just, you know, you just read the thing. Right. I mean, explains he, itself. Who even who even knows who's on the Supreme Court these days? That's right. Um, not that that's controversial at all. Uh, I, this is a great chapter, and there's there's so much going on in it, and um, obviously there's so much to discuss with uh, with the preceding chapters of the book that that are that are driving in so many ways towards this, and and I want to cover a handful of important. Elements, but the first thing that I think jumps out in any historian of, of law, liberty, constitutions, etc., is the distinctiveness of the American decision to write it down and write it down not in the forms of uh, you know the, the the laws of Solon or some sort of series of edicts handed down by a lawgiver, um, but to have a series of proposals, have a debate, and then of course give it to the people to be ratified in the forms of ratifying conventions. And while it's not a direct referendum in the form of say the Brexit referendum from a few years ago, it's pretty damn democratic, um, especially when one considers the intensity of the debate over ratification that goes on around it. Now, yes, the, the Federalists that emerge as the Friends of the Constitution do ram through the Pennsylvania ratification process. But the political backlash against that is so severe that it in fact protracts ratification for several years and it is a document that is read by the common people that they have judgments of, criticisms of and that then they wind up having an election about or a series of elections and they vote on it and they wind up giving it its approval and in many ways, it is a vote for liberty on either side of the issue because 
many of the fiercest critics of the Constitution, many of the most uh, intractable anti-federalists – we mentioned Melanchthon Smith in the last episode – are in fact uh, concerned that it unduly restricts the liberty that the revolution was fought uh, to secure through independence. Um, and so you have a great debate about whether or not this system of government that people can see, that they can judge for themselves, that they've had experience with the different parts of through, uh, through electing their representatives and through observing the inefficacy of the federal congress. Um, you have this great debate. All of it cabined within the, the rhetoric of liberty and I think that puts us in an interesting position. When we talk about how the constitution secured liberty, on one level, there's the crude answer that it fixed some of the problems with the Continental Congress and it's still the governing document and with the exception of the Civil War has pretty much more or less survived since its ratification. Um, so just as a pragmatic issue, it secures liberty. But of course, that's a rather weak argument and that's not what we're here to discuss. Well, I it's, don't know. <laughs> it's an important. It's an important one. Certainly, right, one okay. would never want to want to downplay it. But there's there's, I, I think it's safe to say that you think there's more at stake uh, in the Constitution when it comes to securing liberty than simply setting up a government that survives. Right. Um, and just before I get to that, I want to uh, underline a point you made about the ratification process. The Constitutional Convention, which is so interesting and so dramatic and we have James Madison's notes and notes from some other delegates who attended, that was a secret conclave. Uh, one of the only things George Washington said to it, he was the presiding officer. He only spoke three times at the very beginning, the very end and then once in the middle, one of the delegates had left a copy of the minutes lying around. And Washington like picked this up and said, you know, this is this has been left lying around. Whoever owns it, claim claim it, may claim it. And he threw it down on the table and stalked out of the room. And the delegate who recorded this event added that he reached into his own coat pocket to see if it was his, and he didn't have his in his coat pocket. And he thought, oh my God. Then he went back to his tavern and fortunately found his copy in his other coat and then he adds, no one ever claimed the paper. You know, They did not want to be chided by George Washington. So that was a secret conclave. Knowing the guile of Washington, is it at all possible that he used his own copy for the sake of display? <laughs> well, that may be a, that may be a, <laughs> a step too uh, guileful for, for him. But, but as you said, then there is a year-long debate where it is all out in the open all out in the open. We, the Federalist Papers is the famous document about this. It was one of many, many, many pro and con. So this was hashed over in, in throughout the country, in all the states, uh, in the press. Uh, people were also aware, aware to an extent of what was being done and said in other states, not just their own. So yes, a very public ratification process. Now, OK, so finally the Constitution does win. But so what – how does it secure liberty? The, the, the preamble says that is one of the goals uh, that this document uh, seeks to accomplish. And there are loads of answers to that. Looking at the structure that was set up, uh, how uh, different parts of the new government balance each other, 
how it was expected that office holders in different parts of the government in order to defend their own turf and their own perks would keep an eagle eye on other parts of the government to make sure they weren't trespassing. So in a way, they're all watching each other and they are deliberately set up in order to do that. Uh, you have the executive, you've got a judiciary, you've got a, a legislature with two houses and then you have states. So it's a deliberately complicated uh, mechanism here. But what struck me as vital and maybe less commented on as a whole than it should be were three provisions, the effect of which is that there will be no classes of persons in the Constitution, no orders of persons in the Constitution. Now, we know when the French Revolution gets going, there will be a meeting of the three estates. Well, who are they? Well, they were the three different kinds of Frenchmen you know, established by tradition and custom and usage. So there was the nobility, the clergy, and, and the commoners. Well, the Constitution will have no estates. There will be no such thing. Now, the three provisions that set that up, the first is Article 2, the president will be elected. So that means there's not a king. Uh, when Jefferson got his... Uh, you know, he's being advised on what's going on by his, by his younger uh, friend and protege, James Madison. Thomas Jefferson is in Paris when, when the Constitution is being uh, written and debated and Madison is writing him letters telling him what's going on. And Jefferson's uh, initial reaction was, eh, he didn't like the presidency. He thought, he said it was a bad addition of a Polish king. Well, but it wasn't a king <laughs> because he is going to be elected and his terms are time limited. Now, the Polish king was actually elected by the nobility of Poland, but then he, he served as long as he lived. That was not the tenure of the president. It was an elected office and it was a time-limited office. So we wouldn't have any kings in this country. Second point, this is in Article 1, Sections 9 and 10. Neither the federal government nor the governments of the states may issue titles of nobility. So there's not going to be any nobility in this country. Uh, there were noblemen who had fought in the revolution. I mean, a lot of our foreign allies, Lafayette was a marquis. Uh, Steuben was a baron. You will read that he, he, he wrongly claimed that title. Uh, I think the most recent biographer of him establishes that he was a legitimate Prussian baron. There was also an American, uh, this is a little curiosity, who claimed to be a Scottish earl. He said he was William Alexander Lord Sterling. <laughs> and he'd actually applied to the House of Lords to get his title recognized. They'd shot him down. But a Scottish court had said, oh, yes, we agree with this. So during the Revolutionary War, George Washington and all the officers, you know, whenever they're writing about this guy, he's Lord Sterling, Lord Sterling. So they, ex they accepted this odd, this odd claim by this American. But according to the Constitution, we're not going to have that. We're just not going to have that. And, and Steuben, by the way, lives the rest of his life in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he moves here. He settles here. Then the third provision, and this is by far the most fraught, 
because it deals with the great crime that we talked about in our last episode, which was about the New York Manumission Society, slavery. Slavery is fortified in several ways in this document, but it is never mentioned by name. It always refers to other persons, such persons, or persons held to labor. And James Madison, according to his own notes, said during a debate about one of these provisions that it would be wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. Now, of course, there was property in men. James Madison owned property in men, among, among many others. But he's saying it would be wrong to admit in our Constitution that there could be such a thing. So is he looking to the day when it might wither away? Probably. Is he looking to the day when it would be abolished by law? Maybe Madison was never willing to go that far. But he's, he's certainly saying we will not inscribe in our fundamental law the idea that people are held as slaves rightfully. So these are the three orders that nominally do not exist in America, kings, nobility, slaves. Uh, kings and nobility also actually will not exist in America, although uh, slaves do and will, and we will, we will get to that in, subsequent, in a subsequent podcast. I want to get to the the three fifths comp compromise and personhood and, and all this, but I but I think it's worth taking a, a moment to point out the extent to which the commitment to the elimination of orders was not a crude ideological project in the sense that the framers of the Constitution rejected the ideas of anyone who had been associated with orders in the past. And in fact, what they do in many respects as their – what may wind up being a weakness of the constitution is they don't really appreciate the notion of organized faction competing over uh, differing visions of the general good, right? what we would call political parties. But they, they do draw on the kind of country critique of political insiderism uh, in defense of liberty and of course the great exponents of that were almost all titled aristocrats who lived in the country. Right? I mean Henry St. John. Bolingbroke is really the the one that they use the most, right? Englishman, um, English, yeah, yeah, English uh, politician, right. and, and so and journalist, and journalist, and just general pain in the ass. But um, they they are not. It's where their I think their awareness of the particularity of America as a vessel for a general project comes in, where they say, you know, we we won't have titles of nobility in America, um, but that. Unlike their sort of reflexive hostility to monarchy and their reflexive defense of republicanism against monarchy and so it's – much of political contestation takes place in between people claiming, well, you're the crypto monarchist and I'm the real republican. No, I'm the real republican and you're a crypto monarchist or something like that. You don't have that t 
type of debate going on around titles of nobility. Well, it's just sort well, of. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, um, there's anxiety, but it's not. And and you have the fear about the society of Cincinnati, but it's not. You also yeah. have this big debate over what George Washington's title will be. Right. And the Senate wants a, a rather highfalutin one. They, they want. They want him to be called His High Mightiness, uh, the President of the United States and Protector of the Liberties of the Same. And John Adams is very vehement about this. He's Vice President but also President of the Senate. So he participates in this debate and probably shoots himself in the foot politically for doing so. And uh, it's the House uh, guided by James Madison and I'm morally certain with the approval of George Washington because Madison was working with him very closely at this time. It is the House that shoots that down and says, no, no, he's just going to be the president of the United States. So uh, I think, you know, I think the poles of monarchy and nobility, they're they're not nothing. They're kind of strong. I mean, we feel look, we 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 feel them today. We talk about political dynasties, right? They're, they're, they're the Cuomos in New York. There were the Kennedys, uh, the Bushes. Uh, we may have the Trumps uh, if, if his sons and his daughter get into it. I mean this is, this is, this is a recurring thing. Uh, also, Americans, you know, we love foreign aristocrats, right? I mean Downton Abbey just, just, just turned into a movie, you know? So there's, there is this, this tropism it has to be resisted. You know, it has to be resisted and it had to be resisted in fundamental law. And so I think that is one reason and a very good reason why these provisions, you know, Article 2, the president will be elected and Article 1, Sections 9 and 10, no titles of ability, why they were put there. So it sets up an interesting contrast because as you argued in my view convincingly in the last episode, you know, part of what made slavery so difficult to root out is that it flatters some of the darker parts of our spirit. And I think it's also safe to say that uh, nobility and its democratized version celebrity flatters lots of the, shall we say, more – the weaker, more limited parts of our, our person, parts of the, the human spirit. Um, and yet the categorization of it in higher law seems to have worked. Now, as you say and, and rightly observe, we have political dynasties essentially in every state in America, right? There are simply families whose family business is electoral politics um, and moving and, and the satellites that circulate around it. Um, My favorite, Rodney Freelingeisen, just retired as yeah. congressman in New Jersey. He's the fifth Freelingeisen, the first one was Frederick in the Continental Congress. So the Freelingeisens have been going for a long time. Yeah, his, his, the, the town that he lives in is Freelingeisen. Uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, – Lest anyone miss the point. Exactly, right. At, at least once every 50 years, I think it's, it's a little known provision of Freelingeisen has to sit in that seat. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, rain falls up, the moon goes into permanent eclipse, something happens. But uh, – why is it that these institutions are able to survive and check the kind of the, – the, the spirit of the supplicant that exists in, in the human soul? Well, uh, I would argue because the commitment to liberty was already so strong that there would be pushback both uh, 
principled and and well expressed and you know also rude and crude and populist uh, about people getting uppity you know you've got you've got both of those going on but they act as sufficient practical checks to make sure that that no one has proposed repealing these uh, provisions of the constitution how important is it that washington had no children i think it was very important uh, and he's mindful of that when he uh, is considering his first inaugural address. He uh, he writes a long draft and he sends it to James Madison to to ask him to you know edit it. Uh, he runs it by Madison, and in that he says that he has no children uh, whose happiness he could build upon his country's ruins, and and he's saying that that's yet another reason why you should trust me with this important office. I mean, the main reason is that he's already, in effect, been the chief executive during the whole Revolutionary War, right. and he went home at the end of it. Right. That's the big thing. But he's also saying, "Look, I, there's no Washington kids." And then when you when you look at those early presidents, Washington childless, Jefferson has daughters, uh, Madison has a stepson only, Monroe has daughters, uh, Jackson has adopted children. So who was the only one who had sons? That was John Adams and his eldest son becomes John Quincy Adams, the sixth president. So if they, if all those men had had sons, it could have been a little um, complicated. A little dicier. Yeah, a little complicated. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's talk about slavery because I, I thought it was one of the most interesting observations in this chapter that you, you seize on and I – this is not a thought that I'd had before and it, it's something that's new to me and I, I want to keep thinking about it but – um, the notion of personhood and Madison's hesitancy uh, to write slavery explicitly into the Constitution. And so part of it is euphemistic. Part of it is sort of cold calculation around the Three-Fifths Compromise. Obviously, we see that the Three-Fifths Compromise winds up in fact being a kind of ticking time bomb within the Constitution itself mm -hmm. because it distorts the political incentives and representational um, basic notions of equity uh, in the representation of the different parts of the country coming together in Washington. What, what is the – imagine someone says, yes, that's all very nice and good that Madison had that idea but as a practical matter, it didn't matter a damn at all and it still wound up detonating the constitution. It still wound up leading to millions being in bondage such that you wind up with Washington saying that you know, if every drop of blood drawn by the, the bond – by the oh, lash – or Lincoln. Yes, I'm sorry. Lincoln in his second inaugural, he says you know, if every drop of blood drawn by the lash has to be drawn by the sword – um, so be it. Um, what then do we say? Is Would it have been easier to root out slavery if it had been more explicit, more vulgar and more crude? Um, oh, no. Gee, I don't think so. I mean, you know, Lincoln points to this. You know, this is one of the things he, he, he will point to and not he alone. I mean, uh, anti-slavery politicians and abolitionists will point to this feature of the Constitution. I mean some of them even make the argument that uh, these references to persons held to labor really do mean indentured persons and, and that in fact the Constitution is a thoroughgoing uh, anti-slavery document. I think that's, that's – <laughs> well, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't laugh at it. It was an important argument to make. We talk about the Overton window, sure. which uh, what can be discussed. 
Well, they were they were pushing the Overton window and not without reason. And the, the reason it was not without reason is those words, slave, slavery, slaves, do not appear in the American Constitution. Now, I have to tell the story why, the, why there was this uh, debate in Madison's comment. Uh, my favorite delegate to the whole process, Governor Morris, uh, this wonderful, witty man. He was a New Yorker, but he was serving from Pennsylvania because that's where he'd been uh, living for a number of years. And he just had it with, with the Southerners. And, and he said, why I moved to amend, uh, uh, this is the slave trade, uh, references to when the slave trade can be forbidden. I moved to amend this to say the importation of slaves into the states of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia shall be allowed until such and such a year because I want it known that this is being done for the benefit of these states. <laughs> well, and then everybody tries to shut him Harum up and shush rough. him, you know, yeah, yeah, don't do that. And he's being deliberately provocative. And then it's in the context of this little argument, discussion, that Madison makes this um, observation that it would be wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. Uh, so, so you were talking about the concept of 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 personhood, and then of course how that gets sliced with the three fifths rule. It's like we're, you know, taking some sort of culinary knife to persons and cutting them, you know, uh, slicing them apart. But uh, you know, at the same time that Madison is himself a slave owner and living in a slave society, he still has imbibed and we must assume agrees with the principles that his friend and fellow slave owner, Jefferson, wrote into the Declaration, that all men are created equal. So it's like they know they're doing something wrong. He knows there's something wrong going on uh, and he knows this document is not going to get rid of it, not going to fix the problem, but he's not going to put an extra impediment in there by putting in the words. That's what he's saying when he says that. So I think, I think this goes to one important element about the constitu uh, having a written constitution and the audacity of a written constitution because you know, a, a person needs one reason to hate a document but every reason to love it, right? And so they, they know they, – they're smart enough to know that they're taking a political risk in writing this down. But um, it's probably worth keeping in mind that Madison is hemorrhaging money and is plantation at this point. Um, Georgia is still small but knows it's going to expand but it's not obvious that Georgia is going to expand with large plantations at this stage. In fact, most of the people in Georgia probably assume that pot Georgia will expand in much smaller communities. It will look more like Kentucky's settlement or you know, the Shenandoah Valley settlement where you have smallholders, yeoman farmer type things where slavery will be smaller and that the economic proposition of slavery at the point of ratification doesn't look good. Its outlook is not great. You do have South Carolina, which is just a thoroughgoing slaveocracy. It's you know sometimes there's a majority of the population is made up of of human chattel slaves. But prior to um, the revolution in commodity production through slavery, abetted by technology, that will come about a mere twenty years, thirty years after um, after the the ratification, 
it's understandable for people to believe that slavery is dying on the vine and that as long as you're not importing more slaves, it will eventually work its way out. And so in that universe, the three-fifths clause is not in fact an accelerating ratchet of distortion and representation federally but just a decelerating, diminishing, less and less important distortion over time in their minds. Um, and writing that down from the standpoint of viewing slavery as an economic failure, I think we can say they're in fact locking in a lot of – they're boxing in slavery in a lot of ways. The naivete was that they simply didn't understand that actually innovation breeds economic production within the, within the, the rules and parameters set down around it. And that given the reality of slavery, it was probably only a matter of time before somebody invented something like the cotton gin mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that would that would then flip the script on the profitability of slavery and we would go into the dark uh, sort of ramp towards civil war, which becomes inevitable precisely because at that point, the three-fifths clause is not increasing or uh, is not diminishing the, the representative the, – the representational distortions of slavery but actually accelerating it. Right. Um, um, I think one other um, aspect of containment that happens at the same time the constitution is being de debated is that the old congress, the, the soon-to-be outgoing congress is uh, passing the Northwest Ordinance. Right. And this is an argument that, that Lincoln will make over and over again that uh, at the same time as the Constitution said the slave trade could be extinguished in 1808 or 20 years after it's ratified, Congress was saying that the old Northwest Territory would not have slaves. So in Lincoln's mind, that's, that's a policy of containment. You know, you're cutting off the source and you're blocking its expansion. You're half blocking its expansion because, you know, you still got the old Southwest and then once the cotton gin is invented, there's fortunes to be made. And Roger Taney comes along. And, yes, yeah. right. Probably one of the great monsters in American history. But. Uh, well, one of the, one of the most uh, unfortunate in his effects, certainly. Um, what then – obviously one of the conditions of ratification is amendment and we get what becomes known as the Bill of Rights. Madison writes sort of condenses a bunch of state proposals into 12. He limbs off whole subsets of them that have to do with special dispensations or supermajorities for particular types of things that different states want. And he focuses in on, on 12 amendments of which the uh, – our current First Amendment is the third mm -hmm. um, and it goes from there. Without the Bill of Rights, is the Constitution a liberty guaranteeing document? Well, yes. I would say so. Uh, there are some Bill of Rights-like guarantees in it. There is the right of habeas corpus which is in the body of it. Uh, there is uh, the provision of uh, bills of attainder uh, and corruption of the blood. Uh, there is also um, – th this is an economic one. Uh, states are forbidden from uh, impairing the obligation of contracts. But it, it, it's a liberty document. I, I would repeat for these three reasons, no kings, no nobility, no mention of slaves. There are no orders of people, at least on paper and also partly in reality in America. 
Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.